There we go. Sorry, guys, for being two minutes late. I was having a hard time going live there. Uh, Chrome was hanging up on me. Um, my name is Andrew Krauss. I co-founded EventRight with Stephen Key over 20 years ago, and we've been coaching and mentoring inventors ever since. And we've had students in over 65 countries, and we have students every week that are, are licensing products to big companies. Uh, we've been doing this series during the, we're not calling it the COVID series, during the COVID uh, crisis. And you guys have been loving it. I really am really, really enjoying doing these live Q&A sessions with you guys. Um, and for those of you who have been with me for a while, you can see it on my headset. I got my snowball mic here. So hopefully it sounds almost as good and I don't have to wear that silly headset tonight. So I'm looking forward to that. So what I wanted to do tonight was a little bit different than what we've been doing for the last seven weeks is I want to talk about things that you guys are fearful of, you're worried about, and you're concerned about, the things that you feel like are holding you back. And if there's one thing that, that Stephen and myself have been doing in right for the last 20 years is removing roadblocks for inventors, removing these major roadblocks where people are like, well, I have an idea, oh, but I can't do it because of that or because of this. And we're really, really good at that. So hopefully we do that for you tonight. I'd like you guys to direct your questions towards that topic. If we run out of questions on that topic, I'll go to general Q&A, but I'd like to do questions on what you're concerned about, what you're worried about, what you're stressed about, why you don't think you can do this or that, so I can do my best to remove those roadblocks. Um, and then if we run out of those, I'll go to general Q&A. But I want to try to keep it on there and do something a little bit different. So, um, okay. So let's see. Uh, let's see if we have some questions. Uh, Madeline, if you could um, copy them from the, uh, the chat, any ones that are on those topics. And I'll just pull them directly from the chat as well. Um, let's see. I'm looking for questions that things that people are afraid of. Okay. Well, you know, I think that one of the big things that people are afraid of is um, the cost, a lot of things surrounding intellectual property. Intellectual property is just a fancy way of, which really means a patent, copyright, trademark, uh, could be a, um, um, a trade secret. All those things are intellectual property. It makes you sound fancy. Most of the time what we're referring to when we talk about intellectual property because we're talking about a patent most of the time. So some of the big fears, I don't think it's that new to a lot of people now, but Stephen and I were really pushing the provisional patent since the day it came out. We've been doing this for 20 years, guys. Um, and because we just believed it was the most incredible tool for inventors. So when you have a provisional patent that you can file yourself without an attorney for $70, that is incredibly empowering. Now, not only can you file it, now it's not a patent, it's a provisional, patent attorneys will always make this distinction. It's not a patent, it's a provisional patent application. Because when you file it, um, it's, it's not actually a patent. Unless you file a full utility patent and reference the provisional, it's not a patent. But what's really cool is when you have a sell sheet or you have marketing materials, or you talk to companies legally, and some of you may not be sure about this, you can say patent pending. You don't have to say provisional patent pending. You can say patent pending. 
legally for an entire year for $70. Now, also another thing is you don't need to spend eight or $10,000 with a patent attorney. So you can file it yourself. You know, and now there's another fear. People go, oh, that's great, Andrew. I can file a provisional myself. But I've looked at patents. It's some sort of bizarre language. I could never do that. Well, with a provisional patent, you can do it in common English. And you don't need to write it in what that patent speak that patent attorneys write in. Anybody can write a provisional patent. I've had many students that didn't even have their GED, and they were able to file a provisional patent application. So anybody can file it. So I would say one of the most empowering things that Steve and I really push at InventRight is the provisional patent application and the ability for somebody to get that protection for a year, that perceived protection, you know, to if you later file a patent that you'll get protection from the date you originally filed your provisional from for an entire year. Now, here's the problem. We've talked about this is people get all excited about that and they file it, but then they just sit on their hands for a year because they don't know how to reach out and contact companies. And we can talk about that as well. So um, I think that the provisional patent is something that what it means is if you feel like I don't have the money for a patent, that fear is completely wiped off the face of the planet. Okay, now people then fear like, well, I don't know if I can get it done in a year. Well, you typically, and again, anything that I talk about tonight is not legal advice. So seek the services of an attorney if you seek legal advice. This is just general business advice. Um, so if you're going to reach out, you should be contacting companies like the week after you file your provisional. Now, it's not a big deal. I mean, if you file a provisional, you spend 70 bucks and you don't reach out to anybody, you can file that provisional again and you get a new provisional from the new date. It doesn't continue the old one. But what's the point? You keep spending $70 and keep getting a new date and, you know, gives you the warm and fuzzies you're protected. And that's great. And it should. But if you don't know how to reach out, it doesn't do you any good. But it is a very empowering tool that means whenever you come up with an idea, you can protect it for $70 temporarily and you could fish off the pier and see if there's interest. To spend 10 grand on a patent, not knowing if there's any interest, if your business model is licensing, there's no reason for anybody to ever do that. There isn't. You know, you can always file the, the full patent after you get some interest, or you could go, well, I want to preserve that filing data. I still want to file the full patent. But so now the cost of a patent is no longer an issue for inventors that we talk to. And a lot of you have found out that on your own. Um, but a lot of you don't know that. So it's a very, very empowering um, approach. Uh, let's see what else you guys are fearful of. So again, we're looking for things you're fearful of, okay? Okay, this is, um, I don't know how to pronounce this name. I guess he's from India. Adi, I can do that, the short version of it. The major roadblock to me is guidance. There, there are a number of ideas I have, but without guidance and funds, I can't do anything. Is there any way in which a company can help work with me? So Adi, um, first off, the fact that you're in India, I'm going to say that we've had students in 65 countries and people can be very limited in funds and still do licensing. If you want to start your own business and sell the product yourself, you need a lot of money to do that. It's crazy. But when you license, it's the big company's money. They're going to invest their money 
use their workforce and their existing distribution. So the fact that you don't have funds is not a problem. Now, let's address all the reasons why Audi might be concerned about not having enough funds. So one, he thinks he needs a patent. Well, Audi, um, if you have $70, then you, you can file a provisional patent. Problem solved there. Another uh, place where you might think you need money is for a prototype. Now, there are products you can work on that are complicated and difficult, and you need to spend some money to figure out if it could be done and cobble together a prototype. But there are a lot of products where you don't, where you're literally going down the store and buying something for $20 and cannibalizing it and Frankensteining it or changing it, and that's your prototype. And maybe there's duct tape on the back, but you throw it once and it works, it breaks five times, but you know that they can do it. So the belief that you need to go out and spend huge amounts of money on a prototype for a lot of ideas, I'm not saying for all ideas, but for the vast majority of ideas, you're not selling your prototype, you're selling the benefit of your idea. And the benefit of your idea can be relayed with a virtual prototype. Adi, you're in India. I bet you could throw a rock and find somebody that will do a virtual prototype for you for 15 bucks. Okay. So you're not restricted there. And people in the U.S. can go to India on web, freelance websites and get people to do that sort of thing as well. So now you don't, you're not limited on funds in, as far as getting a patent. Is If you don't have a really difficult project, you can make some sort of prototype, a virtual prototype, or buy something at the store and change it. Um, and then, you know, you have to do some sort of marketing presentation. Again, Adi, you're in India. You can find people to do that very, very cheaply for you. So now the other part, so you again, I just removed all your roadblocks. Now, if you're, if you're so broke that you can't afford, and I know income levels are different in India. Well, I talked to a guy from India the other day. He was a... a um, engineer is very well off, but some people, you know, it's limited. Um, then that that's problematic. But if you can afford $70 for a provisional patent, then you, you can do this. Okay. Um, now I've just removed those roadblocks, but I didn't tell you how to do everything. I didn't talk to you about your idea and go, well, your marketing's kind of weak. You know, your list of companies, it's not three companies. You could have 30 for this. I would look over here and here. Here's how to contact companies. Here's how to talk to them when you get interest. So Adi's other part was said, I don't have any guidance. So he says major roadblock actually is guidance. And I agree with you. So Adi, if you're really limited, watch all our YouTube shows. I've talked to people that binge watch our YouTube shows. And, you know, and, and like their spouse will come in. They're like, what have you been watching for the last five hours? Oh, this guy's on InventRight, guys. So watch our YouTube show. Get our book, One Simple Idea. If you're in India, it's hard to get the written version. Um, so you get the audio book or the Kindle book or something like that. Those are very low-cost ways you can get some guidance. Now, Steve and I, when we first started 20 years ago, we did live seminars. And... We would do live seminars all day Saturday, all day Sunday in, Sunday in person in Silicon Valley, where Steve and I used to both live. And people would praise us to go, you guys are the greatest. You know, I finally understand licensing from listening to you guys. And they were saying great things about us. But I started checking in with them and they weren't doing licensing deals. And most of them weren't doing the work. Now, we let people even come back for free to another weekend seminar as many times as they wanted. But, you know, Steve and I talked about that. We're like, we're not down with that. We don't care if people love us. They think information is great. So I said, well, 
why don't I do coaching? And I was our first coach back in the day. Now we have 10 coaches and negotiation coach. That's when people started licensing products. So I, we, we have fans that have licensed products without a doubt, but with getting some sort of guidance from a coach is, is invaluable. I wish it didn't have to be that way, but there's so many little things where people get confused. So, um, but if, if you're limited on funds, you can't afford our coaching. I would definitely, Adi, I would, I would watch every YouTube show, read our books and just go for it and realize that money is not your issue. If you have the time, you can do this. The patent's not the issue. The prototype's not the issue. And there, in the, there's no other, there's no money issues in your way, really. Okay. So, and that probably answers a lot of people's questions. Um, so the next one is from Soko. Soko? I don't know if Soko is Soko. Sorry. I'm nervous about what type of list to make to call. Do we say Postmates for delivery industry piece, or should I be looking at who made the piece for Postmates and call them Soko there, Soko? I, that's such a specific question. That's an example of, I need to know what your invention is so I can guide you. So I, I can't answer that question. It's too, it's just too specific. I need to know your invention. We're not going to publicly disclose your invention on a live YouTube stream. Um, so Gabriel says this, so this is great. Keep sending in these fears guys. Cause this is what we want to do tonight. We want to, we want to hit all these fears. The fear of mine is when submitting your ideas to a company, they claim all you need is a napkin sketch to land a licensing deal but their actions prove otherwise. What gives? Hmm. Well, Gabriel, I, again, I don't know who's telling you that. What I'll say is when people are new to inventing and licensing, they make an outreach to a few companies and they glom on, and I'm not saying you're doing this, Gabriel, I'm just saying in general, to one company says this and it's a little, oh, it's not really friendly. Now that's the way it is. So um, Gabriel, what you're saying is, You've heard that companies are open to a napkin sketch. I don't believe that's true. I don't think we say that. I don't agree with that, actually. And and then, um, but to plan a, land a licensing deal, their actions prove otherwise. I don't agree with you at all. Um, I don't think that's what we say either. I don't think you should have a napkin sketch. I think that's ridiculous. I think that you have to have a professional presentation, but it's not as hard as you think. So you need um, to be very clear on your marketing. If you don't have any experience in marketing, I've found that the average inventor isn't very good at, at um, doing these marketing points. So one of my tips I give in a prior session is if you have a sell sheet, a one-page advertisement, it's always a one-page, no slide deck, no 20 pages, or even two pages, one page. So make your marketing piece on a on a on a PDF on a computer, or it could be on a piece of paper and print it out, but don't be that old school. And put it on a laptop or on a computer, preferably a laptop. Sit across from a family or friend member or somebody you know that you've never shown the product to, never said anything about. It doesn't matter how positive they are, because sometimes family is too positive or too negative. So this still works. Swing the laptop around with your marketing piece on it. Don't say a damn thing. Look into their eyes and see if they're confused and listen to the questions they ask. When they ask questions, do not answer them. Let them continue to answer questions. So if you don't think you're the greatest marketer, give it your best stab. 
spin it around, see if the person gets it. And if they don't, then fix it and do it with a couple people. So that's a really low cost, completely free way to test your marketing out. But I don't think any inventor should ever be sending inventions in on a napkin sketch, uh, on, a, on a napkin as a sketch. You know, I mean, to do a sell sheet these days is very affordable. Um, Adi is in India. People in India, you know, there's, there's freelancers that will do things very, very cheaply. Um, and so there's no reason for you guys not to be doing a sell sheet or getting a virtual prototype done and making it look nice. Now, it doesn't need to be like a magazine ad, but it needs to come across as really clear and the benefits to be really clear. So, Gabriel, if you think if you're sending ideas in on a napkin, don't do that. We didn't say that. I mean, we've always talked about sell sheets and videos. That's your problem. Um, look professional. So you like our students. I'm just throwing out a random percentage here, guys, but companies are constantly telling us InventRight students' presentations are so much better than everybody else. They thought through the marketing. Um, a lot of inventors um, will not study the marketplace. They won't go on Google Images and see what's out there. And one of the biggest things companies are irritated by is I found it in 30 seconds on Google or I know that already exists. So do your market research. Don't keep your head in the sand and know if it exists. And then when you do your marketing, it should be based around the other products in that space. And you can actually take a lot of the marketing from the other products in that space and just tweak it. And you will that's a great tip. So you're doing a better job. So Gabriel, um, don't do napkin sketches. Don't do email rambles. Don't do that. Do a professional sell sheet. It doesn't need to be beautiful or perfect, but it needs to be a marketing piece. This is what it needs to be. It needs to be the advertisement that they would show their customer. So it's not like we'll make millions or this is a great idea. It needs to be a marketing piece where they look at it and go, oh, if my customers saw this, they would buy it. That's what it needs to be. And that's not a napkin sketch. That's not showing them because when companies see your marketing materials, they'll give it six to 10 seconds. That's it. You don't make them use their brain because they won't because they're too freaking busy. People in corporate America today, they're doing two or three people's jobs. They're overwhelmed. And you need to make it really easy for them to see it and go, oh, yeah, hmm, that's interesting. So um, let's see. The next one is here. These are great, guys. Covey uh, Robe, I guess that's your handle. Um, our parents always told us we need to work hard is the one and only and ethical way to earn money. And by working hard, they meant sweat, college, nine hours a day, six days a week, etc. Uncomfortable of the thought of having a passive income. Could that be something that is embedded in, in most of us, preventing us from licensing idea, especially for the older ones uh, between us? Wow, I love that. Um, Con Convy Um That's their handle. That's not their name. I love that, that, that mention. What I've found is that it's it's not as prevalent in the U.S. as it is in other countries. Um, I've had a lot of Australian students tell me they call it the tall poppy syndrome. So, you know, when you reach out to companies in Australia, um, some companies, I would say Australian companies, are not as open as U.S. and Canadian companies and a lot of European companies. 
although U.S. and Canadian are the most open. And I'll tell you in a minute why I believe that. Um, and I've had students in uh, so many students in Australia they say, well, Andrew, it's the tall poppy syndrome. You know, the big company says to the inventor, well, who are you? You're just some little guy. You're just an inventor. Like, why would we pay you a royalty? And there's this perception that, um, you know, why would we deal with an independent inventor in, in some countries? And I think it's part of American culture, this entrepreneurship. But even though it is a part of our culture, there, you're absolutely right. Person answering the question, I'll call you Convy, I guess. Um, there are still a lot of people that feel that way. So more than any country, the entrepreneurial spirit and inventive spirit is, is very strong. I'm not saying it's not strong in other countries. It is. But industry isn't necessarily quite as open. And I'm not saying they're not open in Europe or other countries. Or you can't license other countries because you can't. But most of our international students will focus on the U.S. And you're more likely to license a product in the U.S. It could be a European company that's really strong in the U.S. So don't get me wrong there. But um, I, I think that as ourselves, too, even though I'm saying that entrepreneurial spirit, that inventive spirit is encouraged in the U.S. more than any country in the world, I still think a lot of us question ourselves in that area. And what I can say over 20 years of doing this with students in over 65 countries, most of them focusing, even though they're in other countries in the U.S. and Canada, um, that companies just care about the product in front of them. And what's really beautiful um, in other countries, they, oh, what's your, you know, send me your CV. You know, what have you done in the past? What's your portfolio? Who are you? What are the credentials? Educational. American companies, for the most part, could care less. And I love that. That's such a beautiful thing. It's such a, it's, it, there's not everything about the U.S. is beautiful and some of it's ugly, um, but that part of, not necessarily who we are, but who we see ourselves at is, is a beautiful thing. Um, so the only thing I can say to you, Convy, is that most companies, they just care about what you're showing them now. So if you show them a good sell sheet and you're easy enough to talk to, you can do licensing deals with some of the biggest companies in the U.S. and Canada. And you don't have to have a background in product development or engineering or you don't have to have any formal training. And we've seen that. We've, we've preached that for 20 years, Stephen and myself, and it's, it's, it's the truth. And um, so, and, you know, she's talking about, or he, I don't know, talking about um, passive income. In licensing can pro provide incredible passive income, but it's not overnight. So we don't, we don't want any of our students to quit their day job until they have a license or two with royalties coming in. Because you could be earning 150K a year in royalties and the royalties could go to zero overnight if they decided to stop selling the product, which they have the right to sell, to do, and give the product back to you. You know, maybe one product you're earning 15,000 a year, another product you're earning 150. It depends on the product tremendously. Um, but it is incredible passive income. But don't think that every product you license because a patent is 20 years, that you're, it's going to sell for 20 years. Product life cycles are very fast now. Some products I've seen, I'm like, I could easily see that selling for 15 years and other companies won't come in on it. Some products, you know, they'll sell for two or three years. Um, some products will sell massive volume. Some products sell eh, mediocre volume, but just keeps plugging away forever. It varies tremendously, but it is an incredible passive income source 
but it doesn't happen overnight. When you do a licensing deal, it takes a company anywhere from three months to a year to get that into production. And then you get paid your royalties quarterly. So it's got to be in the stores for another three months. So don't think you're going to do licensing and you're going to become like a millionaire overnight because that doesn't work. Now, what's beautiful is you're putting all that work on them and you're moving on to license other products. You're continuing with your day job or your other business and you can continue on with other products. So it's beautiful in that you, you don't have to risk massive amounts of time or energy or money or mortgage your house and home. So it's an incredible, um, and removing the fear that some of your family may have, or you may have, they don't understand licensing. So when you explain licensing to them, this is the way I would explain it. Say, oh no, when you license a product, they won't know what the word license means. So you say for royalties, I get a small percentage on every unit they sell. The big company is going to invest their money. They're going to manufacture it, do the advertising and do the marketing, do everything. And they'll use all their workforce because my product will just be one other product in their line of 50. And they're going to tap into all the places they're in. So you could mention, you could say, well, if I license the OXO, they're in Walmart and Target and Bed Bath and & Beyond and Walgreens and Rite Aid. And that your, your family, which is another concern, well, my, my family's concerned I'm going to blow a bunch of money or wasting my time. So that's why I wanted to address this. Explain it to them like that. And they're like, oh, I thought you need to start a company and pay a ton, bunch of money to a patent attorney and do this beautiful working production prototype. So that's another concern that people have, that their family is not going to be supportive. But when you explain it to them, that it's very, very low risk financially. But I do need to put the sweat equity in to close the deal with that one company. And I might need to call 30 to get that one, you know. Um, okay. So then the next one is from Raul. Um, I'm worried one PPA won't be enough for my idea because it's improvement that can be applied to multiple products that are manufactured in almost the exact same way. Should I apply for multiple PPAs? Well, if, first of all, what's beautiful about PPAs is you can file them along the way. If you have rule, if it says you're worried it won't be enough for my idea because it's an improvement that can be applied to multiple products that are manufactured in almost the exact same way. So you could wrap that all into one PPA, Raul. But let's say you're talking to companies and they're like, well, we don't like this or we don't like that. You're like, no, let, let me think on that and get back to you. You come up with a solution. You file another PPA. So your first PPA had A and B in it. And then you take that first PPA, you file it again, and you add C. And now you got protection for A, B, for C from that date. And now you got two provisionals. So, um, but there's no need if it's for the same type of potential licensees to file multiple provisionals, in most cases, you can throw that all into one provisional rule. Now, if you didn't want, let's say it has, you've got multiple licensees. One is for a sporting good product, but the product could also be done for gardening implements, okay? You might wanna separate those out. So when you show them the PPA for the sporting good product, uh, this is a dramatic example. They're not seeing it for the other industry. Um, but even then, I really wouldn't be concerned about it because part of doing the deal is you say, yeah, I'm giving you the rights for the sporting good. 
and, and you could even get them to pay for the patent that would cover you in all areas, but not the rights in other areas because you don't sell gardening implements. And so, Raul, most of the time you're going to file it in one provisional and there's no reason to file multiple provisionals unless you come up with other iterations and you protect yourself along the way. Then it's a great reason to file provisionals. And by the way, when you do that, if you get interest from a company, get them to pay for the patent or you pay for it yourself, whatever works out, you can reference those multiple provisionals and you'll be protected from those dates. You know, so that's thank you. That's um, you guys are getting smart. You're, you're presenting the questions in the frame of a concern. Um, dot, uh, Murat, when our invention is not related to our normal expertise, for example, a doctor invents a car safety system idea, pitching it to someone who is an expert in his field, the car industry creates uncertainty. I don't think it needs to. Um, I'll give you an example, Murat. I had a student a long time ago, back when I, I'm I'm the co-founder. I was the original coach. I trained a lot of our original coaches, but I'm, I can't do coaching anymore because we got like 25 people in the company. But when I was a coach, um, I had a student that had these bizarre farm implements and he was a farmer. And I was, I've never been threatened personally. Um, and I can show you guys how to, to always become an expert in any industry in any product category. Um, I've never been threatened by that. So I just, I ask a lot of questions. I have, um, I like doing that. And I just asked my, well, what is that? And I could tell the marketing was terrible because I, I didn't know what it was. Because even somebody that's not in farming should be able to understand it with the marketing. So I asked him a lot of questions and I understood these farming implements. And I helped him rework his marketing, rework like the list of companies and all that. And, and but I asked him a lot of questions and a lot of it was asking him questions about these implements. I said, well, Based on that, you need to find this and this and this. And he would come back. And then I go, oh, okay, well, now the marketing's more clear. Now it's more clear on who you're going to contact. And and he said, wow, Andrew, like this is this marketing is so much better. I'm not a farmer. I know nothing about farming. I mean, anything, any plan I buy pretty much dies. Um, so, but I was able to do it. And so Murat, I think you can do it too. I think there, so if you're a doctor and you're inventing a car safety system, I think that you can get outside of your, it can get too technical. Okay. So it's not about your ability to research something. It's about the fact that it gets too technical and you don't understand the technical aspects of it. If what you've created or your invention or your improvement is a non-technical part of a very technical product, that's fine because you don't need to know all the inner workings of it. You just need to know your piece of it. But if it requires a deep understanding of the inner workings, like I always use this silly example. And if if you're like, if the inventor comes to me and says, Andrew, I, I, I invented this robot and it jumps up on the roof and it will shingle your house. So, uh, so you don't need to sweat. Like where I live, it can get to 110 in the summer. And, and you don't need to sweat and the robot can do the work and then, in the company or myself says, well, how do you do that? Well, I don't know. But I think it's a good idea. Well, that's obviously a wacky inventor, like going way overboard. But if you completely don't understand the part that your improvement involves, then it's getting too technical. But I could get on for, let's say if it's in the car industry and let's say it's an air freshener or let's say it's an air freshener. Okay. 
you can get on as a consumer and you can understand the market. You can get on Google Images and look at all the air fresheners. And you don't need, it doesn't matter that you're a doctor. You become you can become an expert in the micro category of air fresheners by getting on Google Images and going, oh, there's this type, then there's this type, there's these prices. So that's about being um, uh, uh, a good marketer. So don't, don't worry about that. But if it's super, super technical, you should probably work on another idea. Don't work on something super technical. It's going to be super complicated. But you can become an industry in a micro category. So you can't become an expert in industry in the car industry overnight. That's overwhelming. But you could become an expert in air fresheners or bumper stickers or um, things that you stick on your hitch on your truck or um, or, or more technical things. Um, like there was one of our students licensed an automotive product that was for um, people that go four wheel driving for Jeeps that don't have doors. And it created this like Lamborghini kind of door that came up that was a safety mechanism. And he licensed that. And he was into four wheel driving. But let's say he wasn't. You could study. I could study all the doors that go on Jeeps for people that go four wheel driving and become an expert in that category. Read a few four wheel driving blogs and you could do that. So I think it's doable, Murad. I, I don't think you should worry about that too much. If it gets super technical, then you should worry about it a little bit. So that's, that's the question you need to ask yourself. Um, Pablo, I love this one. I'm afraid that one day I'll run out of ideas. You will never run out of ideas, Pablo. You'll never do it. And, and I don't have time to go into all the details of, of how to do this, but I'll. it's basically what I just said. You study... Um, and I've said this in one of these other Q&As I've done before. You can't study all car products or all aftermarket car accessories. That's overwhelming. You can kind of look at them and go, you know, air fresheners, that's interesting. And you could spend two to four hours on Google Images. That's the tip, not regular Google, Google Images, studying air fresheners. So if you study micro categories, don't like try to just spontaneously come up with ideas. That's what most inventors do. They got exposure to something here or there, and it comes to them in the shower or driving, and that's fine. But really, the ultimate way to invent is to study a micro category. So study some random category. It should be something that you don't dislike, but it doesn't have to be something you're crazy about either. But so let's say you just studied car air fresheners for four hours. Don't invent. Look, you know, oh, there's a this price range, these different products. There's natural, not natural. One's hook onto the vent. One's use essential oils. Other ones use chemicals. You know, I, I don't like the ones that use chemicals. I like, I'm, I don't like breathing in chemicals that are blowing me in the face. That's just me. Um, but for me, I'd rather have like some essential oil thing in there. Not that I, I think I bought something once, but I, I guess I'm not that into it. I think women are more into that than guys, but um, not stereotype. But, um, and now you could do that. And so now you know the air fresheners. Now you don't have an idea, but you planted all that information in your brain. You become an expert in that micro category and it will come to you in the shower. It will come to you in the car. And it will come to you when you go back and you look at your research and all those images. You know, I like Evernote. It's just a free program where you can take screen captures of those images or pages, or you can just bookmark them in your browser. You will never, Pablo, if you've come up with an idea or two, and you now study micro categories, you will always come up with more ideas. You know, 
I, if you said, oh, I've never had an idea in my life, okay, I might be concerned. But if you come up with a few, you'll never run out of ideas, man. You should never be worried about that. I love that question. Um, Jeff, my product most likely would be made in China, received positive reviews for next steps. COVID hit now. I fear that they are no longer interested. Attempts to contact is met with crickets. Well, I don't know who they are. Um, I mean, first off, the companies you license to, it's very rare you're going to license to a Chinese company. You're licensing to an American, Canadian company, European company, and they're getting it made in China. So you're not licensing to a Chinese company. So um, it's it's the China thing is really irrelevant. People worry, will they steal my idea? And I'm like, you're not showing it to China. You're showing it to the manufacturer the brand is, yes, they're going to get it made in China. And yeah, they might get quotes and that might be an issue, but I really don't see that coming up. China likes to knock things off. It's like, it's not even really them knocking it off, to be honest with you. Most of the time it's changing though. It's getting worse, but most of the time it's some U.S. based company, individual company, whatever. And they're knocking a product that's selling off well. And they're going to China and go, can you make this? Or China's saying, oh, I know this is popular and they're offering it to manufacturers. We can make this for you, this knockoff of this or that. So it really, to be honest with you, most of the time it's a U.S. or Canadian company that's knocking it off. It's not China that's knocking it off. They're just manufacturing it for the company that's knocking it off. So, um, but, you know, so you have a company. I'm a, let's just assume it's a potential licensee. And... Um, they were they received positive reviews for next steps and now they're they're just maybe busy. So you need to reach back out to them, Jeff, and ask them, you know, get back out to your contact and say, you know, is this a good time? Give them an opportunity to say, yes, COVID's a problem for us. Now, what we found is that it, oddly enough, our students are able to get into companies way easier now via email and via LinkedIn, because these marketing managers are not in endless meetings um, and sitting around the water cooler and they're paying more attention to their emails. So we found it easier to get in. Now, are some companies going to put things on hold? Any good company of a larger size, I think the, the people that COVID affects, the companies that COVID affects are the smaller companies. But most of the time when you're licensing, that's not a problem because you're licensing the big companies because you can think really big, or as I like to say, you can have delusions of grandeur when you're licensing because the company can sell 200,000 units or 50,000 units or whatever it is. And you can go to really, really big companies and think really, really big. So if the company is a company of any size, it might not be the company that's an issue. It might be that individual, you know, and that happens normally. And what I'm telling our students now is this Things will always fall out with companies, Jeff. They always will. And now everybody's assuming it's COVID, it's COVID, it's COVID. It's not. Like when you just try to get into companies, I mean, it is sometimes, but, and companies will, oh, you know, really cool, but not a right match for us, not at this time. And I'm telling our students, which is definitely the case, that a percentage of them, instead of, it's a convenient excuse, instead of saying not a right match, not at this time, they're saying, oh no, because of COVID. Now for some of them, it's true. They're focusing on a different product category or different area, and they just don't want to do new products in this area because of COVID. But other ones, they're just using it as the, the excuse to give to you because people will readily accept it. It's not necessarily true. It's just a different excuse than they would normally give.
So to reach out to companies, Jeff, and to get interest and then later for it to be crickets is very normal. It's extremely normal. So you're assuming it's COVID, but you don't know that. So you need to get verification from your contact there and you just need to reach out. Um, so, you know, I mean, without getting into the specifics, I know your name. I, I think you might be a past student. I, I forget. I'm not going to look it up in our database right now, but I know the name. Um, so let's see what else we got. We have, okay, I, I'm, I'm glad I just reminded myself we're going to 10 minutes past the hour because we started 10 minutes past the hour. Last time I was going to end 10 minutes early. Um, so that's, so I'll make sure to give you guys a full hour. Um, see what else we got here. Okay. So yeah, this is a, this is, I think this can be phrases of fear because we want to focus on fears. Um, Adele, what should I do after I reach 30 companies and didn't license my idea? A large company that doesn't accept. Okay. Yeah, it's a different question. So, okay, what should I do after I reach out to 30 companies that didn't license my idea? Yeah, I think this is great. And I've talked about this on a lot of the Q&As. Um, I mean, I don't think it's great that you didn't get interest. First off, let's talk about what you should have been doing. Or maybe it's a hypothetical, Adele, and you haven't gotten there. My guess is, I, I don't want to sound arrogant, but most inventors that aren't our students, they don't reach out to 30 companies. It's extremely rare. Now, we've been saying it so much on our YouTube show. Maybe some of you are doing that, but it's extremely rare. So I'm not sure if that's a, a, a statement or just a hypothetical. But um, so what you need to do while you're reaching out to 30 companies is ask for feedback. And so getting no's from companies is another thing that you need to get used to when you're licensing because you'll get a lot of no's. You only need one yes. Now, another type of no or another type of what inventors would see, perceive as rejection that you need to reframe is asking for feedback. So one of the best ways to ask for feedback is to accept that they said no. And so whether that's via email or whether that's on the phone, say, no problem. I accept that uh, you're not interested in this product. And you know this is what I do for a living, so I get a lot of no's. Can I have two minutes of your time for some feedback? And if it's via email or on the phone, you're more likely to get feedback on the phone, but people will offer it via email too. So I fully accept that because sometimes you get people that are inventors and companies have told Stephen and I this, like they do a whiny one. Well, why? You know, and they start arguing with the company. Don't do that. And so even if you're fully accepting and saying, I accept that you're not interested, what you're doing is you're asking for feedback. Can you give me some feedback? Do you see problems with my marketing materials? Is it not clear? Are the benefits not clear? Do you believe it doesn't have a clear benefit? Do you believe that's been done before? You can kind of prep them. And, and can you give me two minutes of feedback to help me out? Because I'm going to continue to push out and I might be off on something here. And so, but here's where you need to reframe it. So first off, most inventors never do that. So you got to do that with every single one. And so if only one in five, let's say you have 30 companies. So Adele says 30 companies. And only one in five answers gives you feedback. You're doing pretty good. You got six companies giving you feedback. Fantastic. But you have to accept that maybe four and five just don't respond. 
And that doesn't mean that you can't reach out to them for the future product. It just means they're just busy and they don't have time to write that or get on the phone and talk to you about it. Um, so one of the things that you want to do, Adele, while you're reaching out 30 companies is ask for feedback. Now, if one company tells you something, don't take it as the law because it's not. Sometimes they're just individuals. They're not companies. They're people. And they say stupid stuff sometimes. It doesn't make any sense. I've had students like, oh, a company said this. I'm like, it doesn't even make any sense. And it's just the individual. And But if five companies tell you the same thing, that has legs. You got to take a look at that. Or maybe even two or three. And it might be your marketing materials. I was just confused. I didn't really get it. Or I just don't see the benefit or things like that. You want them to tell you that. So that's what you can do before you get done. But let's say you did that. So again, when you get that feedback and you're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Let's say you need to tweak your marketing materials. I will go back to everybody and say, look, my presentation wasn't clear um, and I'm resending it to you. Can you give it another 30 second look? I think the benefits of the product are more clear now. And do that. Most inventors would never do that either. So when you do get feedback and you realize you're doing something wrong or there's misperceptions, reach back out and say, I, you know, I noticed a lot of people were misperceiving my product. I sent this to you and I fixed it in the sell sheet or you write something and you, and then can you take another look at it and just and make it easy for them to say, no, this is another thing inventors almost never do and say, look, if it's not a right, if it's still not a right match, just write not a right match. Make it so that they don't need to write a letter back to you, okay? Because you're sending it to them a second time now. So those are the things you can do. Now, let's say nobody's giving you specific reasons why not. It's kind of, which is very common to get a lot of non-specific no's. Um, and you've hit 30 companies. Don't throw that project in the garbage can. If you still believe in it, just put it in the closet. Six months later, pull it back out, send it to all the same companies. And we get students licensing products all the time that way. And you're like, well, Andrew, they all said no, that's obnoxious. Why would you send it again? Because they're in a different place a lot of the time. A lot of these marketing managers, they're very busy and they've got a lot of things going on. And before, that was not their top priority looking at a new product. They just had things going on. And now you send it to them again and it's just like one or two, let's say one. And two weeks earlier for that one out of 30, their boss said, we need new products two weeks earlier. Now they're looking at closer and now they're interested. Same guy that said no before. Now you can reach out to additional companies as well. I would always do that with every product. If you realize there's really no reason why people are saying no, you know, and do that. So that's what I would do, Adele, if 30 companies didn't want to license your idea. But take a long, hard look at it to yourself and go, you know, before I reach back out to them, is something where my marketing material is not good? Am I contacting the wrong companies? You should you should do that. You should you can do that before waiting six months too, and then go. Oh, geez, I had a whole I have a whole other ten companies over here, a different type of company. I should send to them. And I've had a lot of students had success with that as well. So, um, see what else we got here. Uh, Minor, hi, thank you for making it fun to learn, learn the content you guys make. Um, a good team in the future is InventRight going to have an InventRight Expo in a convention center. Um, we've been talking about doing some sort of gathering for our fans and past students and current students. 
in Las Vegas, obviously with the COVID thing now, you know, the, the, the trade shows are not happening right now, but those they'll come back. There will always be a need for trade shows. Um, I, I think that this is what I'll say in general, invention trade shows make no sense. So whatever Stephen and I would do with InventRight, it would be based around education. Yeah, maybe we get, you know, 10 or 20 companies to show up, give talks, maybe inventors can pitch to those companies, that sort of thing. But we would never, ever have a trade show whenever inventors have booths. That is ridiculous. So inventors should go to trade shows in the industry of their invention. So if you have a sporting good, you know, or if you have um, an automotive product, you go to the auto show. If you have a hardware product, you go to the hardware show. If you have a houseware product, you go to the houseware show. And you got tons of companies specializing in your area um, to go to an inventor trade show. Waste of time. Don't. It, well, we would never do that. That's not what you were specifically asking. But that's just that doesn't make any sense. That's that's the inventors that show up to those shows are incredibly green. You go to a trade show in the industry or invention and you don't get a booth. So you don't have to pay for that. A lot of trade shows are free if you register under the right credentials. Some of them you need to pay to walk the show and you walk the show and you look for you look for companies in advance that you think are a right match. And you might not even show your sell sheet. You might just ask for the right person to give you a card. And, you know, CEOs, marketing managers, they're all at those trade shows. It's a great place to be. Um, our students, for the most of our students don't go to trade shows all the time. They, they reach out to companies via LinkedIn, via the phone, via email, and you can license from anywhere in the world, not go to trade shows. But going to a trade show and making it, taking full advantage of it, the way that we teach our students to do it is make your list of all the companies you want to hit that you already know are kind of a right match. And you go there and you get their card. You should not be trying to sell them at a trade show. They're there to sell the buyers, the retail buyers. You're there like trying to pitch and not okay. Now, if they're really friendly and you're like, hey, you know, and you whip it out your sell sheet and you show it to them, that might be appropriate. That can be dangerous. It's better to get their card. Forget it. You give them your card, but it's just window dressing. You get their cards, so you can follow up. If you did that with a bunch of companies, it could be incredibly productive. Also, you're walking by other booths. You're like, oh, they're a right match. Look them up on the internet. You can find other companies there too. So trade shows can be incredibly productive. Um, but yeah, we've been talking about doing some sort of expo. You didn't say trade show um, miners. So, um, but I, we've also been talking about doing something online. Uh, we've been looking at that as well. But these are just thoughts. Um, but we will never do trade shows with inventor booths unless it was a different format where the companies were walking around and we had companies that we got to commit to come or something like that. Um, but, uh, but never a typical inventor trade show because it's like, why would somebody in sporting goods come if out of the hundred inventor booths, there's three guys in sporting goods. That's a waste of their time. It doesn't make any sense. So it's a bunch of inventors showing other inventors their stuff. What's the point of that, you know? Um, okay, so uh, Time Lizard says, what, how much time? We got seven minutes left, maybe 10. Um, time Lizard says, I find it hard to have realistic ex expectations for ideas with my limited knowledge of what can and cannot be done in terms of manufacturing. Should this be a concern? Yeah, it should be a concern, but there's an 
endless list of simple products that you could come up with, Time Lizard, or I'll call you TL because that's weird. Let's call you Liz. How about that? Uh, so there's an endless list of products in various categories where the, the improvements to them are very simple. And it's, it's fairly obvious. So you can look at them and go, I know this could be done. So if you make variations to existing products, it, a lot of them are very obvious they could be done, not only to you, but to the companies as well. So when they say, well, how are we going to make this? Well, there's this sells for $9.95 and this one sells for $12.95 and you're just going to change the hinge here. And they're like, oh, yeah, there's nothing more to discuss. But those are the types of projects you should work, you should work on if you feel like you're really struggling with the manufacturing side of some of your ideas. Um, so don't work on highly complex manufacturing intensive ideas. But just having that perspective and looking at similar products, oh, well, you know, let's it's this dog chew toy and you're just adding something to it. And so by looking at existing products, actually telling the companies, well, this exists and this is what I change gives them confidence like, oh, I know I can make that. Not only do I know I can make that because there are other companies making it, but I can make it at that price. That's not something you share in your um, presentation, but it's something you'll discuss when they show interest. So hopefully that that is a fear that a lot of people have, um, Liz. So, you know, you, you, you can definitely um, work on projects where you don't have that fear. And my guess is maybe some of the ideas you're like, no, oh, yeah, I can see that can be made. That is where a coach helps a lot. Um, you know, our coaches are very experienced in that area. They're not manufacturing experts, but a lot of it's pretty obvious to us. But, you, you know, you have, you have to get some experience to make it more obvious to you. Um, uh, uh, digital treasure maps is their handle. Have you ever seen a large company that doesn't accept outside ideas reconsider and accept them? Yes, we've seen um, our students, our coaches get into the back door at companies where it says full on on their website. They don't accept ideas. They get in the right person and then they accept it. So that is very possible. Um, it's more work. And you need to know the techniques for doing that, but it is possible. Absolutely. We do see it. Um, uh, let's see. Ken. Uh, uh, Talia, what is the biggest fear that you, that you see inventors have? Um, well, I'm surprised this hasn't come up tonight getting ripped off. Right, we, we reduce the fear of the cost of the patent. I can't afford a patent. I think getting ripped off is a big fear, and what I I can just say the sample size of experience that we have in Ventrite is huge. Twenty years, students in sixty five countries. We've never had our students get knocked off by a company that they have presented to, um, that I know of, um, and I think a big part of that is conducting yourself professionally. When you have good marketing materials, you don't say wacky things on the phone, you don't ramble in your emails, you separate yourself from those wacky inventors. So that small three or 4% of companies that might knock you off don't want to mess with you. So let's say, let's say this unethical XYZ company and Sally's your contact and Bob is the unethical CEO and Sally says to Bob, hey, I think this, um, I think Andrew's product is really cool. Um, I, I think we should license this. Bob said, wow, why should we pay this guy? Why don't we just go around and do, do whatever we want? And Sally says, you know, 
this Andrew guy, he's saying the right things. He's not like that wacky inventor, the other idea um, that we talked to. He knows what he's doing. He's got good marketing materials. He's, he seems to know what he's doing. I think that would be a liability, Bob. I think we should either license it or we should move on. But I don't think we should just do it ourselves. He's got patent pending status. Well, what protection does he have? Let's just look at his provisional and go around it. You know, well, I, I don't think that would be wise. It looks like he's covered a lot of the angles. Um, so I can't guarantee you <laughs> are, are, there's been happening that happened exactly like that behind the scenes, of course. But conducting yourself professionally is way better protection than any patent. Um, and I have talked to inventors that told me they got ripped off. Well, first of all, I talked to inventors, talked to one couple, it was about a month, a month and a half ago or so. He told me he got knocked off by this company. I said, well, how long ago did you show to him? Three weeks ago. I'm like, okay, and the product's on the market? Yeah, it's right there. I see it. I'm like, so you're telling me you think a company can manufacture and bring a product to market in three weeks? Yeah. Dude, you're whacked. I just told him. I said, you're whacked. That didn't happen. Well, no, no. I'm like, no, it didn't happen, dude. Um, so, uh, and I've talked to inventors where they asked for a quarter million up front. And they had moved really far forward with the company. The company said, what do they want? These aren't our students. These are, and the company got pissed and worked around them because they invested so much money and time in it. And now this inventor was insisting a quarter million up front and they didn't want to do that. And he insisted on it. Well, yeah, I, so I do think that inventors, it happens to inventors. I think a lot of time it's the inventor's fault. And I think a percentage of the time it's definitely the company is unethical. And it happens, but conducting yourself and it will happen to one of our students one day without a doubt just hasn't happened yet, but it's a pretty good track record. Um, doing and saying all the right things. They don't want to mess with you. So um, I, yeah, Talia, I think one of the biggest fears is inventors think they're going to get ripped off. You're protected with your patent pending status with your provisional patent application. They can't see what you have. You're getting weird vibes from them. Don't show them your provisional yet, you know, um, so they, that keeps honest companies honest. Also always having another provisional in your back pocket that they can't see. You, you get a weird vibe from them. Oh, well, yeah, I just want to let you know, I filed additional IP on this. It makes you sound cool. Cause you say IP, you don't say a patent and, um, and it keeps honest companies honest. So I've had students that, and you, so you don't like act paranoid with the company. If you're getting bad vibes from them, you drop these little hints in a very professional way. And it keeps it keeps doesn't keep honest companies honest. It keeps sleazy companies from crossing the line because they're like, oh, well, now I'm not sure about this. I don't know what additional stuff they filed. So I've had students that were concerned about this. I guarantee you most of the time they shouldn't have been concerned. But I'm like, you're concerned about it. They said they weren't interested. Let's drop these subtle hints so that and and the students that were really concerned about it. I said, well, just keep following up, keep checking their site. And I never had a student come back and said, I went back and they did it. It hasn't happened yet. So, but could, could it happen? Absolutely, it could happen. But you know what's more likely? More likely is the inventor never trying to license their product, never showing it to anybody. Who ripped, who ripped you off, right? You ripped yourself off when you do that. That is a thousand times more likely than a company ripping you off. Now, there's certain industries that are really difficult and really big. And there's certain deals that are really difficult. Most of, the, most of the 
deals that our students do don't fall into the category of like a packaging product where it's like a, you know, it's a billion dollar industry or something, you know, they could be earning really good money, but they're, they're not these really difficult industries. Like I say medical industry, they're very patent obsessed. Um, uh, the packaging industry, very patent obsessed. And, you know, you get really, really big companies. I won't name specific names like the mega corporations, like maybe like there's 12 of them in the world. And those guys are a little harder and they will try to figure out a way around you if they can. But, you know, you can license to companies all day long that are really big in Walmart, Target, Lowe's, Home Depot, and they're not too big to license to and they'll license from you and they won't try to figure out a way around you. So, um, okay, uh, last one, and then we're going to call it a night. Last concern um, uh, from, let's call you Blue Blue Raspberry 111. Okay. Um, I'm worried about licensing something and finding that, in fact, it's already patented and I missed it in my research. Um, we've never had it happen in 20 years. Could it happen? Yes. Um, even in the licensing contract, companies will quite often stipulate that you are verifying that you are not aware of any intellectual property. So when you're doing a license deal, it does make sense to go out there and see what you can find. Um, it's one of those things that is, it's never been an issue for us. Could it be? Yes, it could. So if that's one of the things that's really nice about InventRight, when you know what's an anomaly and what is very common and a coach tells you, oh, will that happen to you? That's an anomaly. Or, oh, that happens all the time. That's going to happen to you constantly when you're licensing. So what, what Blue Raspberries, <laughs> someone laugh. I'm going to sneeze too. What Blue Raspberry is worried about is an anomaly. It's not common, um, but it could happen. So you shouldn't be worried as much about it. But when you're in the midst of a licensing deal, um, should you double check that there's no other IP out there? Yes, you should. Um, and you should look for any prior products that are in the market, any prior patents as well. And we teach our students to do that. Um, so I had a, a lot of fun tonight, guys. Um, I, I hope that I broke down some of your concerns and your worries tonight. That's what I wanted to focus on tonight. Um, you know, I, and I think that I've been doing this for a long time. I think some of you, you're not moving forward because of these concerns. And I'm just saying it so you can think about it because it's private. You know, I'm not embarrassing anybody by saying this. With some of you, you have these worries and concerns because you just don't know the answer. And you're like, until I get the answer, I don't feel like I can move forward. I don't feel comfortable. And then other people have these worries and concerns, and it's an excuse. It's just one more excuse not to do the work, to reach out to companies, to do all the stuff that's that we teach in Invent, right, that is not as much fun as coming up with new ideas. Because all the stuff we teach to guide you through the business side of licensing, none of it is going to be as much fun as coming up with the idea. None of it. So you have to accept that. So some people are just constantly looking for another excuse, another reason not to move forward. And so money's not an excuse. Um, yes, if you want guidance, the gentleman from India, maybe he can't, I forget what his name was, can't afford our coaching program. And I get that. So, But you should still move forward with your ideas. You should still watch our YouTube show. You should read our books. You should still move forward. 
because it's it's fairly unlikely a company is going to rip you off. Now, maybe you don't license an idea because your marketing materials kind of suck and you're not reaching out to the right companies, but at the very least you're going to get experience and you're going to make some improvements on your own. So regardless of whether or not you're getting our help or you're doing it on your own, I, if you don't do it, you rip yourself off. So go outside of your comfort zone and make an effort to do all these things that you're uncomfortable with, whether you're using our YouTube show or our books, or you're stepping it up a notch, way up and going with the coaching. We're here to support you guys. We do a lot of free education for the inventor community. I'm very proud of that. Um, that's the roots of where InventRight started. We were kind of born out of my inventor association that Stephen came and spoke to and people liked him so much, kept coming back and back and back. And we realized that people needed more than just somebody, a talking head once a month, that they needed guidance and they needed somebody to hold their hand. And they needed a system. And that is our 10-step system. And you can use that system even if you aren't getting coaching from us. You, it, We apply the system to our YouTube videos and our books, you know, our 10-step systems. So I want to encourage you to um, actively write. This is what I'm going to give you guys homework on. I love this. Write down. Don't just keep it in your head. Write it down. Every fear you have about inventing. And then if you can't afford the coaching, watch the YouTube shows, read the books and look how you can dispel that myth because everyone you can come up with, we have an answer for and get rid of that and go, oh crap, I don't have any more excuses or I'm not fearful anymore. And it, it, most of you, it's not an excuse. It's just like, well, I don't know. And if I don't have an answer to that, I don't feel comfortable. And other people, it's an excuse. And be honest with yourself. It's a one-on-one -on -one conversation with yourself. Is it an excuse or is it a legitimate fear? And how do I remove that fear? Because we have answers for, for all of it. Um, and I'm going to come back next week. We're not going to do these forever, um, but I'm going to come back next week. So if you if you have some of those fears, come back next week. Let's share them. Let's. I can't answer every question because we have a lot of questions in here, but I'll, I'll try to get to as many as I can. So um, take care. Keep inventing, everybody. I, I love doing this. I, I, I hope you guys loved it as well. And um, if you... When the video goes live, I think it takes 10 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour to go live. If you want to post some comments about if you like the video, I'd appreciate that. If you want to give it a thumbs up on the live video, on the recording, whatever. I forget if it's all the same or not. I'm not sure. Really appreciate that. And make sure to subscribe to our channel. Um, so, and I want to thank Madeline for helping out with the, with the questions. And take care and keep commenting, everybody. See you. Bye.